Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont and Professor Richard LaDuke explore the early history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the life and teachings of Prophet Joseph Smith. They examine the original historical sources and provide context for events of the past. They approach the history of the Church with faith, expertise, and humor. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke. Hello, Garrett. In this installment of the Phoebe Draper mailbag, we're going to start off with Garrett reading in an email. From, Just to switch uh, it up. And mix it up a little bit yeah, from I the mean, great state of Wisconsin. So Richard and I, you know, we have production meetings. Uh, <laughs> they consist of watching the Timberwolves game, um, and that was... That was a little deflating. So, um, uh, you know, I said, you know, I feel like Richard's just talking too much on the podcast. Like, I need to be the center of attention. <laughs> and and Richard, he's he's slowly, he's just, he's muscling his way in. It's true. We have people sending fan mail just to him, and I will not have it. Yeah, it's uh, true. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, so just, just real quick, we've mentioned this before in previous episodes, the, the Brigham Young quote that we say all the time to yeah. each other. Yeah, the Brigham Young quote that uh, uh, it goes back to uh, when they're talking in the Council of 50 Minutes and Almond Babbitt, who is a, he is a long time, uh, uh, well, instigator, I think is a good way to put it. He, Alma Babbitt's the most curious person in church history because he is constantly at odds with both Joseph Smith and with Brigham Young. In fact, Joseph receives a revelation condemning Alman Babbitt for setting up a golden calf for the worship of the people. <laughs> now, I don't know a lot, but I'm just guessing that it's not a good thing for Joseph to receive a revelation condemning you. Well, so he would get disfellowshipped, he'd get excommunicated. And he would just keep getting brought back into the church. And so the guy must have been the most amazing administrator of all time because he'd get excommunicated. They bring him back in, stake president. Like, <laughs> so, so, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, he, he was failing up, uh, in the church hierarchy essentially. Well, so, uh, when they're talking in the council of 50 minutes, um, they're talking about how upset they are that the government's treating them as poorly as they are. And, Alman Babbitt says, well, we need to be careful, you know, because, you know, there were some sermons that were given in Missouri and that, you know, the, they, sh they should never have been given, basically. And Brigham Young stops the meeting um, and says, you know, I uh, says, uh, Brother Babbitt knows that he had Joseph in mind when he said what he said about sermons being given. And I have made up my mind that I will never allow anyone to speak against Joseph in my presence unless he hears from me. So that's kind of Brigham's personality. Well, it wasn't just that he wanted to defend Joseph. He uh, he also wasn't Joseph. Uh, now look, they, they were both, they both had a lot of similar qualities. <laughs> But, you know, it, there, there is God raised up Brigham Young to lead the Saints to, to Salt Lake, there's no doubt. When they're in winter quarters and people are not exactly following the rules, uh, Brigham Young calls a meeting and he essentially tells them 
that if you don't stop your adultery and your lying and your gambling and your backbiting, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just going to leave you here. Um, and then he said, Brother Joseph bore with you on these things because he was a merciful man, but I will not. <laughs> and so jo- Richard and I say this to each other all the time, but I will not. Um, not that Brigham wasn't merciful, but he was, he was, he was, he was at wit's end. I mean, imagine the car ride to it to, well, to to Western Iowa. I mean, well, essentially. So I went in and I I listened to that uh, April two thousand five conference talk from uh, President Hinckley on gambling. Yeah, and, and reformed. Uh, I'm reformed, and so consequently, on this episode, I have a I have one email to read. It's one sentence. And so that's what I've been relegated to for uh, for trying to to you know okay, okay. Well, build up a light. Should we read yours first? No, because mine actually leads into the uh, I see the topic I at see. hand. So and plus yours yours is a tip of the cap to Wisconsin. Yeah, my, this is a, you know. Um, so first of all, let me let's color me a little bit surprised. <laughs> um, I believe I have been a little too casual, as I've mentioned that there are few. Or zero members in Wisconsin. Of course, there are some members in Wisconsin where I serve my mission. I never met any of them, but it, <laughs> I'm sure that there are some on the records of the church. Uh, no, no joke, though. When I was there, we went to a, a ward, that, and we were excited because it, they had just gotten a new building built. And I'm like, oh my goodness, they got a church building built out here? We go to church there. Like, this, it's a ward. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying the location to protect the innocent. Although literally the point of this conversation is they weren't innocent. And uh, we go there and it was like a branch. I mean, it was a ward building, nice, big, brand new chapel, like nobody there in church. And come to find out that they had been lying about their sacrament meeting attendance for years in order to, in order to get the, the building, which I, I mean, that's a good play. Yeah. Yeah. Respect. Anyway. Um, but we did get this email from someone who at least allegedly is both A, in Wisconsin, and B, an active member of the church. Well, so we don't know on the active member part. Uh, we assume, uh, perhaps, I think he attended the BYU. I mean, he makes a reference as if he were active. We know that he is an actual person. We did look him up. Yeah. If you got a Google hit on you, Rob, it's because we were... We're like, before we read this, we need to make sure, because we can't have someone claiming that they're from Wisconsin, but really they're from Michigan. Uh, we, we, need, we need actual confirmation. Anyway, Rob writes, you're one Wisconsin listener who isn't a missionary. Now, Rob's making a joke about the fact that we did get a couple listeners in Wisconsin. Uh, if you recall, it was a missionary who was uh, tasked with eliminating a bunch of illegally or, or non-mission approved downloaded materials on some hard drives. And that missionary was supposed to eliminate all the unapproved materials, came to our podcast, listened to all of them instead of deleting them. And then sent us an email asking and, a question. Yeah, and sent us an email. We also since found out that the missionary who actually illegally downloaded the podcast was also one of our friend's sons. So shout out to him. Uh, but, uh, your dad's ratted you out that, look, there's only so many missionaries in Wisconsin that we can be referencing. There's, and and it's one of you two. Um, anyway, he goes on. 
Hello, Professor LaDuke and Dr. Dirkmont. I have heard Dr. Dirkmont talk about his tearful exploits and trials as a Wisconsin missionary, and I've enjoyed Professor LaDuke's uh, lightening things up with his sports picks. Every time Wisconsin comes up, I think to myself, hey, I have a lot in common with these guys. First of all, I'm a professor, all right? Second, I live in Wisconsin. Third, I served my mission in California, like, right, like yeah, Richard there did. There you go. Um, just like the good professor, I should send them an email. However, I have a very demanding job, and when I do have time on my hands, I need to attend to baptisms, and I feel I should be helping the full-time missionaries with their burdensome teaching loads, so I have no time for emails. So I believe Rob is alleging that there are so many <laughs> baptisms taking place in Wisconsin currently <laughs> that he can't write us an email. So there must have been a brief, miraculous break in the steady stream of people to the waterside for him to send us this email. I was just listening to your missionary extravaganza episode when Dr. Dermott said, uh, no one from Wisconsin listens to the podcast. I, I may have said that. Uh, missionaries excluded. That's right? correct. Yeah, because right. they're not from there. They're no, just no, forced to be there against their will. <laughs> um, uh, and I said to myself, Okay, enough is enough. So he decided to write. I'm a person in Wisconsin who also listens to the Standard Group podcast. It is expensive to live out here, and we barely scrape by in between snowstorms. But I hope one day to find some money to pay for the premium content. Um, as has been pointed out, we are glutting ourselves on the labors of the people, like so many uh, priests of Noah. Um my favorite episode of all time are the ones on the Apocrypha. Every time I think about your banter on Bell and the Dragon, I can't stop laughing. Oh, that was a good one. You should go back and listen to Apocrypha if you haven't heard it. That's good. We didn't include it in the missionary prep. Uh, I don't know how vital it is. Well, but, I mean, uh, I assume if you're going to Italy on your mission. Yeah, if you're serving in Vatican City. Yeah, if, if you are one of the few missionaries assigned to the papal <laughs> residence, um, then you might find it helpful. Uh, I've learned so much from your podcast. My wife and I have taught our children from an early age not to believe anything that is not properly sourced. Uh, respect, because he's a professor. He knows. He. The thing is, he went through getting a PhD. And so that means he also had an advisor say to him, what is this? <laughs> yeah. Electrical engineering and computer science, by the way, Professor of. Wow. If, yeah. in fact, the Google stalking we've done is accurate. How good of a Google stalker are you? I'm not good. You were once a grocery store shelf stalker. <laughs> I was actually yeah. at Lee's Marketplace. Yeah. And how did that go for you? It was great. It was yeah. a great company. I love living in Logan. Yeah. It, it was awesome. It led him to it led to him later slicing his finger. That was at Smith's. I know, but it, it was it was because you moved up in the world. That's true. Um uh, your podcast is a great example of how our testimonies are strengthened from a position of informed knowledge, honesty, and respect. Now, he's going to go on to ask a question about James Strang and some of the Strangites in Wisconsin. In fact, he's going to reference um, uh, Rockford, Illinois, and, and Beloit, Wisconsin, um, that uh, you, you'd be very upset that it's pronounced Beloit because it's it, it looks like yeah, blah, blah, blah. You know, yeah, very French for you. Um, and I... I, I know exactly that location that he's talking about, but it's a question about the Strangites and and the uh, the succession crisis, and we are going to talk about that at some point. We've we've said that we will. It's it's going to be the problem is is that there's so much going on there. It's going to be one of those you know like nine parters. Yeah, nine parters. Yeah, yeah. It, it likely won't come until the uh, 
probably the end of the summer. Well, when is when is the 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 eclipse supposed to cross America again? <laughs> I, you know what? I'll get my crack research. Okay, get step. your research. I think it'll be sometime after that that we'll actually get to. But I appreciate the uh, the email. Uh, very very funny, and of course I know there's great faithful members in Wisconsin because if you're going. If you're if you're active in Wisconsin, you're a faithful member. You are uh, you are pushing past it. Um, Richard, did you have an email? I do. I do have an email here. Um, looks like there was an eclipse April twentieth of this year, so we no, missed no. that one. No, there's this a big the, one coming. Yep, yeah, big one. Crosses Arkansas. Um. Yeah, April 8th, twenty twenty four. There we go. That's the one. So we're gonna try to push for that sometime. April 7th of 2024. All right. Here is my one sentence to read. This comes to us from John. Did the prophet Joseph Smith use a seer stone as well as the Urim and Thummim to translate the Book of Mormon? Great question, John. And that's it? That was the end of the that's email? No. Yeah, well, can I tell you what, John? Right to the point. Yeah. He didn't even say, hey, Professor LeDuke, please read my email. No. Doesn't make a reference to let, me. Let me just at all. reiterate again: we receive so many emails, and which is funny because we only have three listeners. We're somehow getting dozens <laughs> of emails a week, and so we really do read them all. I really do appreciate them. Many of you are very kind. Some, some of you less so. Some of you are less. I kind. will tell. You, I will tell. You, the some less you kinds. Need, the less kind emails are my favorite. Someone emails. needs to. To go back and listen to "Blessed Are the Peacemakers" from Elder Nelson, <laughs> President Nelson, but I mean, it, uh, they they are helpful, and we are, we do get a lot of show ideas from them. So please keep them coming, and if we don't respond to you directly, please do know that we do read them. Sometimes we don't respond because your question's so good, I don't know what the answer is. What? And, and I'm not going to just I'm not going <laughs> to telegraph to everybody that I'm a fraud. Well, so the, the reason that we're reading John's email here is because this is – you've given several firesides recently where this question has come up. And not only has it come up, it's come up in a way where members of the church have been fairly antagonistic toward you and it allows for us yeah, to have and, a discussion. And not just me. In fact, um, there is a fairly popular YouTube broadcast that actually contacted me this week asking me this very same question. Um, and the, the way they phrased it was, you know, there's been a, a lot of rise of people questioning whether or not Joseph Smith used a seer stone. And, you know, ordinarily, this is not the kind of thing that I really want to wade into, but it really is becoming kind of a problem. And, and let me explain especially why I think that it is. Um, I had an email from a, a church leader. Uh, don't don't start thinking that any actual like amazing you know some no general authority knows who I am or cares about stake Sunday school second counselor whatever yeah some a a a more general church leader than that um, they sent me an email in which after a fireside that they'd been given that they had given someone contacted them and proceeded to say, you know, I love you and I really love your, your, your messages, but I'm really not okay with the fact that you mentioned that Joseph Smith used a seer stone because I know that he didn't. And they began to kind of chastise this, this church leader on that point. And they, they, 
they forwarded me the email asking me if I could help. And, and so I, I was, you know, I, I did my, my duty as far as trying to give a good answer, but myself in multiple of the firesides that I've given, even when the topic isn't about that, I have found that there have been multiple people that come out of the gate, you know, swinging, arguing that I am an apostate, in fact, because I've written about and talked about the fact that Joseph Smith certainly used the seer stones that were in the, the box with the plates, the two stones that we often refer to as Urim and Thummim, but that also he had a, another stone, a separate small stone, which multiple witnesses talk about that he used for the translation. The reason why that, the, you know, I'm getting this inquiry from this YouTube broadcaster, the reason why I'm getting this inquiry um, forwarded to me from this church leader, and the reason why this is happening at multiple firesides that I'm giving is because there has been, there is a, a, a movement, essentially, among some members of the church to reject the fact that the church is teaching that about the translation of the Book of Mormon. Now, look, I, I'm a historian, so I'm well aware that not everyone accepts the different parts of, of historical inquiry and conclusion that people make. And there are multiple things that are quite disputed um, in the historical community. For instance, when did Peter, James, and John come? Well, among early Latter-day Saint historians, you actually have a wide range of views. Why? Well, we don't have a date on when they came. So you have people who say, well, you know, it had to come when Samuel was there and Samuel was there on these days. And so therefore, and they try to kind of work their way out. There's others who, are, who will take other evidences and say, well, I think it happened at a completely different time. And so inside the historical community, you're you're fine with the fact that there are there's sometimes a range of possible scenarios. You might certainly feel like you're right about the one you believe in, which which of course you always feel that about whatever you whatever you think. It's very weird for you to believe something that you know isn't right, but you just keep believing it anyway. That would be that would that's not the best way to do knowledge, I would say. What do you think, Richard? I tend to agree. Yeah. I mean, if you already know that what you believe isn't true, you should probably stop believing it. So, look, it's one thing to have an opinion about the way things happened. And sometimes those can be pretty strongly held positions. However, there have been several movements uh, recently in the church that have, that among church members, let me say, who have been troubled by the fact that the church is certainly investing much more time and resources in in the history of the church. And as the Joseph Smith papers or the gospel topics essays or the uh, revelations in context are, are put out on the church's website, oftentimes those narratives that are now on the church's website, they differ from beliefs that people have always had. And sometimes those beliefs are very strongly held beliefs. Now, for, for most members of the church, you know, maybe they didn't know about Joseph Smith using seer stones. And then the church puts out a gospel topics essay that says, Joseph Smith used seer stones. And the member goes, huh, well, I'm glad I know that now. And they move on. But there are other people 
who are adamant that, in fact, Joseph Smith did not. Now, their position of argument isn't from one of evidence. It's actually from one of the absence of evidence. So a very common argument that I will hear from people is they will come, you know, they, they, they wait around after my fireside's over and then come up to let me know what part of hell I'm going to. And then I have to remind them that we're Mormons, so we don't believe in hell, but um, they say I'm still going there anyway. Um, it, honestly, it is a really weird thing. Like, I'll go be giving a fireside where for two hours, I'm desperately trying to get people to believe in the church. Desperately. I'm desperately trying to get them to have a testimony that Joseph Smith's a prophet, that President Nelson's a prophet, that this is God's true church. And someone will pull me aside afterwards and say, well, you know, you're an apostate, right? Because you said that Joseph Smith used a seer stone. So where is that coming from? That kind of that kind of visceral, angry reaction. Because it's one thing to say, hey, I didn't know about that. It's quite another to say, you are an apostate if you believe that. I think I think that there there are rational in their mind reasons as to why that's happening. Perhaps they know somebody that had a faith crisis. Perhaps they were always told that things were done a certain way and now things being done a, a different way means that the people that told them that they were done this way were, were wrong or maybe they feel that they had lied to them and they were not willing to accept it. I, I feel like there's a lot of yeah. ways that people could rationalize themselves. Well, and I, that. I think that there's lots of reasons why they react that way. And so the question then becomes, I mean, we kind of talked about this a little bit when it, when we talked about Book of Mormon geography, right? There are lots of feelings about that. And there are some really, really, really strong feelings about it to the point where I've heard people on both sides of the debate condemn people on the other side of the debate. And yet, what's the church's position? We're not sure. We don't know. Stop being jerks to people about this. And yet, there are people who feel so strongly about it. They're like, well, yeah, but you, you're just an idiot if you don't agree with what I think. Well, the church is saying, stop caring about it. And yet, people are still saying, no, it's the most important thing. And so, I think that's where you end up with this very difficult position where once someone has convinced themselves that a certain part of gospel uh, doctrine or church history is the most essential part of belief, they then extrapolate out from that, those who don't agree with me are therefore there's something wrong with them. But in this case, it's very different, right? So this isn't just like, this isn't just me sitting in the back of a gospel doctrine class, you know, postulating on just exactly how old I thought Methuselah was before he died and being very, you know, adamant about it when someone disagrees with me. This is something for which the church has repeatedly expressed a position. And so what do you do then if you're on the other side of the argument? Well, look, the vast majority of members of the church, they just change their position. Because once the church has a position on something, okay, well, now that's my position. Because we're members of the church, right? That's the whole point. We, we follow what the prophet says. And there, there, like I said, there's a movement. In fact, there have been a few books that have been written. There are multiple online postings, blog posts, uh, YouTube uh, publications that claim, in essence, 
that the church, the leaders of the church, are being deceived by faithless, godless academics like myself who are pushing a narrative of a seer stone being in a hat because we're trying to destroy people's testimonies. Now, there's a lot of problems with the argument, one of them being the logical fallacy of why in the world I'm so desperately trying to get people to believe in the church by trying to get them to believe something false about Joseph Smith. Now, maybe they might be kind and say, well, you've just been deceived. But the, the problem is the, the argument extends beyond that. Like I said, I have had multiple people recently say that I'm an apostate because I teach that Joseph Smith had multiple seer stones, that the way he translated the Book of Mormon was by placing a seer stone in a hat, which is literally what the church's gospel topics essay entitled Translation of the Book of Mormon says. So I want you to think about that for a second. I know that there's lots of things that we don't have answers about. There are lots of things that we're not entirely sure. What is the answer to this question? But then there are some things that we actually do have answers to. I realize that that may not convince everyone, but, you know, as, as I tried to respond to uh, this email that was forwarded to me, um, I started to kind of go through the list of places in which the church has taken a position on this topic. Now, again, I'm not a representative of the church. You know, the, the, the church, the prophet declares doctrine. I don't. I only repeat the things that they have on their website. I can research and do history, and I can say as a historian, there's overwhelming evidence that Joseph Smith used a seer stone as part of the translation of the Book of Mormon. Overwhelming evidence that the way he translated was by placing either the Urim and Thummim stones or the separate seer stone into a hat to block out the light. David Whitmer, Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, Emma Smith, all independently say that that's how it took place. So that would mean if that didn't happen that way, then all of those witnesses, all of those people who are also desperate to prove that Joseph Smith was a prophet and that the Book of Mormon is the word of God, instead of explaining how it actually happened, they all, and again, independently, because they're not, they're not saying this at the same time, they're all independently claiming that he did it with a, a stone that he placed in a hat, even though they know that's not how it actually happened because they were there, and they know that anti-Mormons attack and make fun of that being the way that it happened. But instead of saying how it actually happened, still said that's how it happened, even though the whole point was to defend Joseph, even though this was going to get Joseph mocked. What is the motivation behind that? Why would someone do that? Why, why, if I'm a witness of the translation, would I say, I desperately want you to believe that Joseph translated it. I'm now going to quote an anti-Mormon for what I saw while he was translating. That's essentially what people are asking. Like I said, there have been several 
people feel so passionately about it. There have been several books written. Now, neither of those books have been written by historians. And those books haven't been published by reputable presses either. They haven't been published by peer-reviewed academic presses. They have instead been essentially self-published, which, uh, as we've talked about on the podcast before, you need to be incredibly wary of something that's simply published by someone's own entity, because that means it didn't go through the review process in which people have to defend what it is they're saying. Mike McKay and I recently published the book, Let's Talk About the Translation of the Book of Mormon with Deseret Book. Well, that book went through numerous, numerous uh, uh, revisions, went through numerous reviews, multiple peer reviews, independent peer reviews of people. I don't know who they are. You know, people who said, hey, I like this. I hate this. Can you prove this? Um, it's probably my mom. I don't know. I don't know who they had read it, right? Um, and we had to adjust and we had to make it acceptable to, to, to those reviewers. When someone self-publishes something, I know they think they're an expert on it. But no other expert has said, I agree you are. And that's the reason why peer review... Now, peer review does not, as we talked about on the counterfeiting episode, peer review does not guarantee that you're going to get something that's accurate. But it's at least a backstop to try to help make something that's published be more accurate. It does, it does, it's not a guarantee. I have legitimately read books and said, how in the world did that get published? And then talk to, bringing the book up to other scholars, had the scholars say to me, they published that? I was the reviewer for that, and I told them not to publish it. And I'm like, well, here it is in print. You know, they were stunned. But the reality is sometimes publishers do ignore reviewers and publish in any way. That's not supposed to be the norm, though. In any case, even having reviewers that you ignore is preferable to ones you don't have, uh, which is the case when someone is self-publishing. They might say, oh, I had a friend review it. That's not what blind peer review is. Blind peer review is someone you don't know who's an expert, who's published in it, who says, yeah, you, you don't even, you're ignoring half of the sources here. So um, I think it's, uh, this, this person in their, in their email um, said, uh, as they were explaining their, their argument to this, this uh, church leader, they said, all the first-hand witnesses to the translation, specifically Emma, Martin, and Oliver, as well as Joseph himself, never said that he used a stone in a hat. This part of the email stunned me. It stunned me because legitimately almost the entire sentence is false. But this is what they had emailed saying, you're wrong, you know, brother so-and-so. You shouldn't have said this because we know that none of the witnesses said that Joseph Smith used a stone in a hat. And they went on to chastise him for, for sharing what they were claiming essentially was false doctrine in his, in his fireside. And, and so um, you, you kind of get an idea of, of the stridency of that and the definitive nature of it. 
Martin Harris didn't say it. Okay, Emma didn't say it. David Whitmer didn't say it. Oliver never said it. Joseph never said it. Well, that's a lot of nevers that you're using as a way of saying that this this church leader is, is wrong. Well, then you need to be right about that because you're pretty definitively saying it. Now, they do say, I got my information from this, this book that's making this argument. So, so I, I mean, I do feel for this person because they're just simply repeating back what they read from this book. But notice how persuaded they were by this book. They were contacting this church leader to say, you are wrong because of this book that I read. You're teaching something that's false because of this book that I read. So, Garrett, actually, what, before you get into some of the um, maybe the back and forth that, that you had, or the back, I guess, the, just email the email. That, yeah, yeah, just not. A, but but you actually did have a back and forth with somebody at the fireside. It was an interesting experience, which is part of the reason that we're having this conversation now. How, how did that? How did that go? So you came down. Well, so and you know, there was, they waited for look, you. To I chat. mean, I don't. I mean, I'm not a large draw. Okay, I mean, I, most <laughs> of the people listening have probably had an opportunity to go to one of my firesides and said, "Is there anything else on?" Oh, it's the Best of Bread Marathon. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, yeah you're you're a winger <laughs> cover band in Carson City. Yeah, basically. I mean, uh, so I, I'm not trying to say that. Like, I do do a lot of firesides because I'm always willing to do. I'm always trying to spread the gospel. I'm not saying I'm effective at it, but. If people will say, hey, we'd really like you to come speak at this, I, I try to do it if I can, you know. And uh, a good friend of mine had me come speak in his stake. And um, there uh, was uh, a person in the stake who, who you know, I noticed she was kind of lingering around after I was done. And I was talking to a lot of other people. And, um, the, you know, someone came up and they introduced me to her. And and, and I said, oh, hi, you know, da, da, and and. And this person said, well, tell him, tell him what you think, tell him what you think. And, you know, she proceeded to say, you are teaching false doctrine because you are saying that Joseph, you published a book. Cause I didn't even, my, my lesson was not on the translation of the book of Mormon. That wasn't what the fireside was on, but she had come to the fireside, um, because she knew that I was an apostate because I had published a book with Desiree book, two of them, saying that Joseph Smith had translated the Book of Mormon in that way. And she was saying the same thing. And again, she had read this other book that had made this claim. And the way this book makes the claim is Joseph never said that that happened. Joseph never said that that happened. And so anyone who says that Joseph used a hat is a liar. And who are the people who said that he did? Well, they're apostates. That's who said that he did. So therefore, anyone who says that is a liar, an apostate, da, 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 down the line. And, and it was interesting. This, this woman said to me, none of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon said that Joseph Smith used a seer stone. Same thing, just like this email. And I said, well, well, I mean, they, they all did. I mean, I was, I was actually stunned. I mean, given the fact that all of the witnesses of translation say that he used a seer stone, when someone says none of them did, that's kind of a weird, I mean, I get it. I understand that not all of those sources is of the same value. Like some are interviews that they're giving with people. Some are people saying, oh, I talked to Martin Harrison. He said, I get it. 
I, I, I understand that not all sources are created equal, but it's a really weird thing to say. Martin Harris never said Joseph Smith used a seer stone and a hat. And you're, and you say, well, here's, here's the, the interview that he published where he said Joseph Smith took his hat and placed a seer stone in it. I mean, so, so if we want to have a discussion about, I don't like that source, or I think Martin Harris is wrong, that's a discussion that, that you can have, right? But it's a really weird thing to say he never said it at all. Well, what's your, what's your evidence for the fact he didn't say it? Well, cause, cause, cause Joseph didn't. Okay. But, but they, but he did. No, Joseph didn't have a seer stone. And she was very belligerent. You could tell she was very angry at me because she saw me as someone destroying the church. And so I said to her, I said, well, you know that the, the gospel topics essay on LDS live on, on, on library on the church history library app, that's on everyone's phone where their scriptures are. It says that that's how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. Her response was, I don't believe that. I don't believe it says that. Well, it, I mean, that was a fairly easy thing to demonstrate that it does. And, and um, I said, well, you know, President Nelson uh, released a, a, a video that's on YouTube. It's on the church website where he's discussing the translation of the Book of Mormon. And he's sitting in harmony, and he even says that Joseph put the seer stones in a hat and translated. Her response to that was, he never said that. That didn't happen. And I said, well, no, it, it did. I mean, you, you can watch it. She's like, I don't believe that. I believe you're lying. It was, it was, she was very I believe caustic. you're lying. Yeah, that's what she said. I believe you're lying. He didn't say that. So luckily I had my cell phone, right? You know, thankfully. And, uh, you know, I wasn't checking fantasy football scores right then because um, it's not football season. But um, I, I pulled it out and I pulled up the video from the church's website and she watched it. And her mouth dropped open. She was so certain that there's no possible way that the church could be teaching that that as she, she finished watching it, her mouth dropped open. She said, and I said, well, that's the prophet of the church who's teaching that. Do you, do you believe that President Nelson's a prophet? And crazy. And remember, this conversation started with her saying, I was an apostate, that I was leading people away from the church. Her response to watching the video was, well, I follow what Joseph says. I follow what Joseph says. And I said, so are you saying that President Nelson is a false prophet? I'm not saying that, but maybe he's been led away by, by, by people who have been telling him different things, academics who don't have any testimonies. And I said, you've just listened to me for two hours defend Joseph Smith and the church against attacks by anti-Mormons. Do you think that I'm trying to lead people astray? And she said, well, well, what, what you did tonight was fine. But, but if you say that Joe Smith used a seer stone, you're just destroying people's testimonies. And so I said, well, it's not just President Nelson. I mean, you know that Brigham Young talks about Joseph Smith having a seer stone, right? Do you believe Brigham Young is a prophet? And she got a little defensive. Of course, Brigham Young is a prophet. 
And I said, okay. And so I pulled up on my phone where Brigham Young talks about Joseph Smith finding his separate seer stone, uh, 30, you know, finding it in a, in a kettle under the earth. Right. And she reads it and she's stunned. And I say, you know, Wilfred Woodruff talks about that seer stone all the time. One of the arguments she made was Joseph Smith didn't have any seer stones because he gave the Urim and Thummim stones back with the plates, which is a fine argument. I, I think Joseph did give those stones back when he gave the plates back. And I said, well, Joseph has something that he's calling a Urim and Thummim in 1841. She said, no, he doesn't. And I said, well, we've already, I mean, I didn't say this out loud, but in my mind, I'm like, we've kind of already done this rodeo three times now. I say something that happened. You say that, no, that didn't happen. And then I literally have you read it from the original source on my phone. And then you go, oh, right. And that's exactly what we did. So I, I, I said, Wilfred Woodruff in his journal, very excitedly, by the way, says, today I saw for the first time the Urim and Thummim Stone, Joseph's office. And he, he's very excited about it. In fact, after that, Wilford Woodruff will refer to Joseph as Joseph the Seer for like a whole year in his journal. Every time he references him, Joseph the Seer said. It's, it's, it's just pretty crazy. And, and she said, he, he didn't say that. And I said, okay. So pulled up Wilford Woodruff's journal and she, and she read it right there. And she was stunned. I said, I, so she's like, stunned every time. Like this, yeah. this is quite the, uh, quite the to do. I, I would, is, is the level of stunned reducing or it's same level of eyebrow raising well, she, stunned? She started with, she was so angry. I mean, like that she was telling me I was an apostate trying to destroy the church. So as we got further into the conversation, and look, I'm reducing a two hour conversation to, you know, two hour conversation. I was probably more than two and a half. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, obviously radio edit, um, but um, I mean, we're, it, it, she's softening a little bit, but still adamant on each of the independent positions with Wilford Woodruff saying that, you know, that, that Joseph Smith had a seer stone. She, she just could not believe that he, he, he didn't say that. So we opened up the journal and we read it. And then I said, and, and then Wilford Woodruff will talk about that seer stone multiple times. And I said, here, he'll talk about how Joseph found it when he was digging a well. And again, she's like, I, I just, I just don't believe that he said that. And again, this woman was a faithful woman, but she had read a book that had made the basis of the argument. Anyone who says that Joseph Smith used a seer stone is a liar and an apostate. So what do you want her to do now when you're reading Wilford Woodruff? well-known liar and apostate who's saying that Joseph Smith had a seer stone, right? You see, you can see the dichotomy there and, and you could witness in her visage this, this huge conflict because she had been so convinced. And look, I understand why these arguments are convincing. We look at the world around us and people are apostatizing right and left and someone comes along and says, you know why so many people are leaving the church? It's because of that newfangled church history that's coming out. Did, did you ever hear people leaving the church over seer stones before the Joseph Smith papers were published? It's those academics. You know how those academics are educated, right? 
They go to liberal institutions like the University of Colorado. Well, they got you there. I mean. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I had more of my professors that were atheists than were. I mean, I don't even know if I had any professors that were members of the Democratic Party. They were all like green and, and socialist party. Didn't go yeah. far enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They were like, uh, <laughs> they they couldn't respect Bernie Sanders at all. Like, he is <laughs> a, a capitalist pig dog. <laughs> He's a. He's a complete sellout. He's, what does he have, two houses? Okay, okay, Bertie. I mean, so yeah, I did go to a very liberal school for my education. And and I don't want to make this about political views. You can be a liberal and be a perfectly faithful member of the church. You can be uh, a conservative and be a perfectly faithful member. We have, we have members of the church in countries where it's literally illegal to not be a communist. And they're still members of the church, right? So I mean, I mean, Probably much to the chagrin of some er, er, earlier church leaders, but I mean it's it's the reality, right? I mean there there there's there's members of the church from all kinds of political persuasions. But when she said it, what she meant was that you know this kind of corrosive academic influence that is leading people away from faith and towards some kind of secular uh, belief that God isn't real. And yet, literally, she just heard me for two hours. Talk about the amazing miracles of the restoration of the church, the miracles Joseph Smith performed, the miracles of the translation, the miracles of revelations, that this is all a miracle. And the response was, but you're trying to get people to, to you know, fall. but that's what this, this book that she had read argued that there were no sources that said Joseph Smith used a seer stone. And here she was reading directly from the journals of Wilford Woodruff, not a typescript, you can go to wilfordwoodruffpapers.org uh, and read the actual journal from his handwriting. His handwriting is beautiful. You can read it. I recommend it. Go go take a look. And she didn't know how to process it because she was so certain that no other church leader had said Joseph Smith had used a seer stone. And then I said, you know, he doesn't just say Joseph Smith had a seer stone. He actually will consecrate it on the altar of the temple. And then the mouth dropped as far as it could drop. You know, then at that point, you know, you're, you're picking it up off the floor. And I said, and she said, no, no, he didn't. He didn't do that. And I said, well, uh, yeah, he did. And, and I said, um, you know, this on the altar of the Manti temple, when the Manti temple is being dedicated, Wilfred Woodruff writes in his journal that he and 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 this was actually special to this person because that's where they had been married, and and that softened quite a bit because it was something special to them. And we read that Wilfred Woodruff, and I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means that Wilfred Woodruff said he consecrated upon the altar the seer stone that Joseph Smith had found some thirty feet under the earth and carried with him throughout his life. That's what he says in his journal. But I do know that that means Wilfred Woodruff believes Joseph Smith had a seer stone because he's consecrating it on the altar of the temple. And that seer stone is then what was, uh, ended up in the first presidency vault in, in Salt Lake city. And, you know, we ended up having an, an amicable conversation. It was several hours in before she was willing to even, you know, give me the time of day, but it was a, it was a good example of how she had been given false information and had decided that that was absolutely the answer, but without actually checking it. You know, I asked her, I said, 
well, you saw me standing in a foyer of a chapel that's not mine in seconds, pull these sources up. Are these sources in the book that you read? And she said, well, no, they're not in there. And I said, okay, why do you think they're not in there? Don't you think it's important if Brigham Young and Wilford Woodruff are talking about Joseph Smith having a seer stone, that someone who's writing a book about how Joseph Smith never used a seer stone, if that's the title of the book or the the, the theme of the book, don't you think it'd be important to explain those sources then? Was Wilford Woodruff lying? Was Wilford Woodruff just, you know, did he just find a rock on his way into the temple and say, yeah, this is a seer stone? Um, what? What what do you think is going on? But instead, the book didn't mention those things at all. And I said, why do you think they didn't mention them? And she said, I, I don't know. I, I It seemed like they were trying to include all the sources. And I said, how hard was it for me to pull those sources up? She said, it wasn't hard at all. And I said, I'm, like I said, I'm standing in a foyer of a chapel in a place that's not my building and I don't have it saved somewhere on my phone. I just pulled them up from the various places on the internet that they are. Why did the authors who wrote a book on seer stones not do that? And so, you know, I said, we're kind of left with only two options here, right? Either they didn't even do the most basic of fundamental research, meaning they didn't even read the church's essay on translation and then go look at the sources, right? That's that's just a church history library thing. That's a that's a everyone can get on churchofjesuschrist.org right now thing and do it right now. You can do it on your phone right now. What does the essay say? So they didn't even do the most basic level of research or they they do know that those sources exist. In which case, why aren't they telling you that they exist? When you come to something like that, especially when someone is being so adamant that they are correct on a position, if they are leaving out these very important prophetic sources that contradict them, well, they either are not qualified to write the book they're writing, because you're claiming to be an expert on seer stones, but you're not including the places where prophets talked about them. Or you do know that those sources exist. And then it's actually worse. You're either, you're either not doing research enough to make you qualified to write a book, which is the, the best case scenario, or you're fully aware that those sources exist but you don't want the people you're trying to convince to know that they exist. Why? Why don't you want them to know they exist? If you think they're bad sources like Wilford Woodruff's journal, then tell us why it's a bad source. Explain it. But instead, the decision was to hide it. The decision was to not talk about it at all. And that's why this woman was so stunned. Well, and as we were talking... (laughs) Um, uh, this was earlier in the conversation when she said, well, I followed Joseph Smith. And I said, what about President Nelson, right? And I said, and it was after we showed her the video of President Nelson, you know, saying that Joseph Smith put a seer stone in the hat. 
I, I said, it's very interesting. We started this conversation with you adamantly saying that I was an apostate trying to lead people away from the church. And there's only one person in this conversation between the two of us who is saying that President Nelson has been deceived. And it's not me. Right? I mean, that's why it's so important that we do not get caught up, whether it's when the second coming is, whether it's uh, the church's position on some kind of political issue, whether it is, you know, uh, you know, ham radios and food storage, whether it is whatever it is that we decide is super important, it is so essential that we do not get ahead of or behind of where the prophet of the church is. Because I can have a theory all day long about where the Book of Mormon took place. If President Nelson tomorrow says, I've had a revelation that it took place and I won't even give a location because I don't want anyone to think that's where I'm saying it was, then that's the new position of, of what I believe. Because my position is whatever the church's position is. You know, back to the email that... Um, uh, this church later received in responding to it for them to, you know, I, they forwarded it to me. They, I mean, it's not like it was a, a bait and switch thing. He, he forwarded it. He, he responded to the, to the woman saying, Hey, I've got some friends who really study this. Maybe they can help answer your questions. Thank you so much. He was very, very, very polite. Um, I, you know, drafted an email back. Um, and in which I said, um, you stated in your comments that all of the firsthand witnesses of the translation, specifically Emma, Martin, and Oliver, as well as Joseph himself, never said that he used a stone in the hat. I'm very confused by that. You indicate that you got the information from a certain place, and I'm not sure why that group or any person would claim something like that when we have multiple statements from Emma and Martin that say exactly that. For instance, Emma said of the translation, quote, I know Mormonism to be true, the truth and believe the church to have been established by divine direction. I have complete faith in it. In writing for your father, I frequently wrote day after day, often sitting at the table close by him. He sitting with his face buried in the hat with the stone in it and dictating hour after hour with nothing between us. That kind of sounds like she's saying that Joseph Smith put a stone in a hat, correct? It does. Yeah. Now, again, maybe you say, well, well, I don't agree with her source. That's, that's one thing you can say. Well, maybe Emma's wrong. But here the argument was she never even said it. I think it's safe to say she did. Well, it's not the only place she said it. She also uh, wrote a letter to a family friend, which I also included in this. Now, the first that my husband translated was translated by the use of the Urim and Thummim. And that was the part that Martin Harris lost. After that, he used a small stone, not exactly black, but was rather dark in color. Again, it seems that Emma is saying that he used a separate seer stone. And not even seems. He's, she's actually giving... He used part of, for part of it, he used the stones found with the plates, the Urim and Thummim stones, and for part of it, he used the separate seer stone. That's why it's so odd that the argument that was being made isn't Emma's a bad source, it's 
Emma never said it, except for the fact that she did. And we have the sources in front of us, right? Um, so so yeah. given, given the two options that you've laid out, what do you think is the more logical thing that they just don't know that these things exist? Well, I, I think because because I think because they can't you, know. Well, I, I mean, I mean, I think I think that that's not actually a viable position. But but to disprove to disprove their point is such a a layup. How how can they not think that in that that's going to be looked at, reviewed? I, I don't know. I all I know is. If you were going to write a book on, say, the geography of the Book of Mormon, and it was two church members, I don't think there's a single member of the church who was going to write that book that wouldn't go to the church's website and see what the church has stated on the topic, right? Because the whole point is to prove to church members what the church's beliefs are, right? So, but but you're suggesting then that this person must think that their readers are so stupid as to in no way do a basic search on churchofjesuschrist.org? Well, I think that they, I, now, I mean, I'm not 100% familiar with the, the because I don't know sure. exactly what sure, source they're sure, looking but, at but for but the particular Like you argument. say, there really are just a couple options here. Either yeah. they're ignorant to it, which is stunning, or they're lying, which that is an incredible lack of... Well, and I've heard it lots of different ways. So I've certainly heard people say, well, Emma is a bad source, which is very different than these. Th these two arguments were they never they said never that They never said happened. it, yeah, right. Right. Th those are completely different things. It's one thing to say Emma is a liar and another thing to say Emma didn't say anything. Those, those are two separate statements, right? The one case, Emma is silent. Mm -hmm. She isn't trying to stake out a position. The other, she is trying to stake out a position. It's just not your position, right? We have to do this with some things, right? For instance, Emma will um, fairly cagely, um, but when asked by her son, who's then the reorganized uh, church prophet, Joseph Smith III, you know, did, you know, did father practice polygamy, basically? And Emma kind of gives a, non-answer answer, but that sounds like he didn't, right? She says, you know, people, I can't, I'm not quoting this directly, but essentially, you know, people said that Joseph had more than one wife, but, but I was the only one that I, I knew about something like that. Right. And so what do we do with that? When we know that Emma from other contemporary sources knew that Joseph was practicing, right? We know that from William Clayton's journal. Right. But, but again, to your point, it's not that they're saying that Emma is stating something that isn't exactly accurate or purposefully trying to take someone down a different path. They're saying Emma never said the thing that she just said. At least some of these sources. Part of the problem is this argument that Joseph never used a seer stone and a hat comes from a lot of various different ways that people approach it. Clearly, these people had been approached with the argument of none of the witnesses ever said it. But I have heard people give variations on that argument, which are, of course, David Whitmer said that he did, but David Whitmer's a liar and an apostate. Oh, of course, Martin Harris did say that he did, but Martin Harris is a liar and an apostate. Of course, now, now that argument only goes so far because there's also people who aren't quote unquote liars and apostates who say it, like 
Joseph Knight. Joseph Knight is nothing but a desperate friend to Joseph Smith, and in his autobiography says, Joseph put the seer stone in the hat and words appeared on the stone, and that's how he translated, right? Is Joseph Knight also trying to destroy Joseph Smith? I, and, and I understand the argument. I do understand that because there is so much antagonistic rhetoric out there that it, it does sound like a pretty good way to argue against Emma saying that Joseph put a seer stone in a hat by saying, well, but Emma was an apostate. Right. But what is Emma trying to do at the moment that she says it? A historian, you, look, it's almost like as an investigator, like our like our police officer friend with people trapped in the back of his car right now listening to this very episode. Shout out to you. Um, the criminal or the cop? No, the criminal. We've already given the we've already given the officer a shout out. I don't think he needs more. He's just happy to have people in pa his cage. Pardon me, the alleged criminal. Yeah, the alleged. Everything's alleged at this point. So motive matters is what I was the point I was trying to make as far as an investigator goes. Why would these various people like Martin Harris and David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery in one source, why would they all say that Joseph Smith put a stone into a hat to translate if he didn't? Kind of back to our original question. Now, someone might say, well, maybe they never really saw what was going on. Okay. Um, how would we know that they didn't see it? Because they all say that they did see it. In fact, Emma's very clear. There was nothing between us, right? David Whitmer, very clear. There was nothing between the people translating and the scribe, right? So, so how would, I mean, so I guess you could theorize, you could theorize, well, maybe they didn't see it. Okay. Let's take that theory for a test drive. So none of the witnesses actually watched what Joseph was doing. Ergo, all of them then had to come to their own conclusion about what he was doing. All of them independently over the course of 60 years in multiple different statements said that he put a stone in the hat and looked into the hat. How would that happen? Did they all get together? Even though Emma and David Whitmer weren't on good terms, they got together and said, you know what? When we later lie about how the translation took place, let's say the same thing. Well, it's just how deep the conspiracy goes. Exactly. And that's the problem is you have to deal with what the motive is. When Emma quasi denies plural marriage happened, what's her motive? Well, her motive is defending the name of Joseph Smith. She's well aware that if she says Joseph practiced it, that people are going to attack Joseph. So what? She's seen that. She, she knows that. She's witnessed it. So there's a motive there to not say that he did. Her son is the head of a church now that says there was never any plural marriage. There's a motive there to say that he did. What's the motive when she's desperately trying to convince people that Joseph Smith translated the book? By the way, the same people who question her as a source are the same people who quote her when she says Joseph could barely write a, you know, a well, you know, dictated letter, let alone, you know, a well-written letter, let, let alone dictate the Book of Mormon, right? She's the one who tells us that Joseph stops when he translates about walls being around Jerusalem and asks her incredulously, are there walls around Jerusalem? And 
Emma, you know, is almost laughing to herself like Joseph. I mean, of course there's walls around Jerusalem. Have you not read anything in the Bible? It, people don't have a problem with that, but it's the same source. It's the same interview where she says, Joseph would put the stone in the hat and that's how he translates. And so what's the motive for that? Since we know Emma was a scribe, again, Joseph says she was a scribe. So again, if we're going back to Joseph, he says, my wife, Emma wrote for me. Okay. Why would she, instead of saying how it actually happened, when she's desperately trying to convince people that Joseph was a prophet, instead of saying how it happened, lie and say, hey, you know how the anti-Mormon Eber Howe said it happened when he's mocking and making fun of my husband and attacking him and calling him a liar? Yeah, that's how it happened. That doesn't really make sense, does it? Similarly, Martin Harris. I mean, uh, you know, just to, to further that point, um, Martin Harris says uh, in multiple places, again, in an interview, in other places, um, but right before he, he dies, there's an interview that he gives. Martin Harris related an instance that occurred at a time when he wrote for the portion of the translation of the Book of Mormon, which he was favored to write direct from the mouth of the prophet Joseph Smith. He said that the prophet possessed a seer stone by which he was enabled to translate as well from the, as well as from the Urim and Thummim. So again, two separate things. By the way, this is being published in the Deseret News in the 1880s. So this is not a secret to church members in Utah. It's literally being published by the church's newspaper to the population of Utah at the time, which is almost exclusively Latter-day Saint. Um, he said that he possessed a, a seer stone, which he was able to translate as well as from the Urim and Thummim. And for convenience, he then used the seer stone. So Martin Harris actually gives a reason. You know, he, he was using the two stones, but it was just easier to use the one stone. Now, I don't know if that's the case, but that's at least what Martin Harris is saying. Martin explained the translation as follows. By the aid of a seer stone, sentences would appear and uh, were read by the prophet and were written by Martin. And when they were finished, he would say, written. And if correctly written, the sentence would disappear and another would appear in its place. But if it was not correctly written, it remained until it was corrected. And that was, the translation was just so. It was engraven upon the plates precisely in that language that was used. Martin said that after he... After a continued translation, they would become weary and would go down to the river and, and exercise by throwing stones out into the river. So this is, you know, hey, we need a break. I know. Let's go skip rocks. They didn't have, you know, NBA TV. So they didn't have the ability to, they had to go out. Let's go throw a rock in that river. Oh, man. Okay. So they go down there. While doing so, on one occasion, Martin said he found a stone very much resembling the one used for translation. And on resuming their labor of translation, Martin put in place the stone that he had found. Okay, so Martin pulls a switcheroo here. He takes the seer stone out of the hat that Joseph was using, the actual seer stone, and put one in the hat that looked like it. Um, uh, he said that the prophet remained silent unusually and intently gazing into the darkness. No traces of the usual sentences were appearing. Much surprised, Joseph explained, Martin, and, and what, what's the matter? 
all as dark as Egypt. Martin's countenance betrayed him. And the prophet asked Martin why he had done so. So Joseph figured out, oh, you swapped the stone out. Why'd you do that? Martin said to stop the mouths of fools who had told him that the prophet had learned those sentences and was merely repeating them, etc. So this entire testimony building narrative that Martin is giving is about the fact that there was a stone placed into a hat. Because Martin is actually doing this, at least he says, he's actually pulling the switcheroo because there are people who are saying, Joseph isn't reading anything off the seer stones. He's just memorized what he wants to say already. Like, like a, like a, you know, an actor memorizing lines from a play. Now what the script is, is still a problem if that's your argument, but well, you know, I digress. And they go in to translate and Joseph's just pretending to read something from the stone and just, you know, quotes off whatever he's got memorized. Greater memorization skill than anyone has ever lived, but, but that's what's going on. And Martin uses the seer stone as proof that that's obviously not what's going on. He swaps out the stone for a stone that looks the same and Joseph can't translate because that stone was a sacred stone. And he thinks that demonstrates, look, this really is a miracle. If Joseph's just pretending to look for effect, then he could still spout off his memorized lines. Or if he had words written in the bottom, he could still do it. There are lots of ways that we can refute those many arguments. But before you know, we close, I know we're getting kind of long here, it's important to note how many places on the church's website right now that make a reference to Joseph tra translating the Book of Mormon with not only the Urim and Thummim stones, which are also, by the way, seer stones. That's how they're described. The possession and use of these stones is what constituted seers in ancient or former times. That's from Joseph Smith history. Um, it, it's not just one place. It's not just the Gospel Topics video uh, resources. Um, I, I referenced the video um, entitled, The Book of Mormon is Tangible Evidence of the Restoration. That's on churchofjesuschrist.org, and that's in which the prophet explains that Joseph Smith uses seer stones placed into a hat. Uh, that same prophet, by the way, back when he was, you know, quote, unquote, lowly apostle, um, he uh, published uh, an article in what was then the Enzyme called A Treasured Testament in which he quotes David Whitmer's explanation of how the translation took place. Again, saying that Joseph placed a single seer stone into a hat and words appeared on that stone. Elder Uchtdorf, um, uh, on his uh, Facebook page a few years ago, actually directly addressed this. He said, you know, people say, do you really believe that Joseph, you know, put a stone in a hat and words appeared on it? And Elder Uchtdorf said, yes. And then used the analogy of his cell phone to say, you know, when it's bright outside and you can't see what's on your cell phone, what do you do? You make it darker so you can see what's on it. Um, so again, this is not just a one-off. This isn't just one person saying this. We now have the prophet, uh, an apostle, um, the gospel topics essays, which is, of course, uh, something that the prophet and Quorum of the Twelve are well aware is on the church's website. It's not like that just jumped on there. Um, but there's also multiple other ways. Um, in the Foundations of the Restoration Teacher's Manual for uh, Seminaries and Institute, there is a discussion of Joseph Smith using a seer stone and a hat to translate. Um, in the Book of Mormon, 
uh, seminary teacher manual um, from 2017. There's an explanation of that happening that way. From the Come Follow Me for Individuals and Families Book of Mormon lesson from 2020. Again, all of this is on the church's website. There's an explanation of it happening that way. Um, in the Foundations of the Restoration class preparation material from 2019, there's an explanation of it happening that way. In the uh, Latter-day Saint History 1815 to 1846 teacher manual, again, all on churchofjesuschrist.org, there's an explanation of the translation happening that way. In uh, the Come Follow Me for Individuals and Families from the Doctors and Doctrine and Covenants from 2021, there's an explanation of it happening that way. From the Book of Mormon Seminary Teacher Manual, again on churchofjesuschrist.org, there's an explanation of it happening that way. These are all recent, within the last 10 years, except for that Enzyme article, um, publications from the church that all explain that that's how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. And that's not all of them, by the way. I, I just realized that was becoming tedious, and so I, I, I stopped reading them. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of manual citations, prophetic citations, church publications, as well as that gospel topics essay. Now, someone might say, well, I don't know why the church is saying that it happened that way. I can understand that. But that's very different than saying the church hasn't said how it happened. That, that, that's not what's going on here. Now, the, the natural question is one that I'm sure some people have right now, and that is, well, how come I haven't heard about this before? Why am I just learning about this? I think I just demonstrated by reading all of those things off that the question you have is not the question that your kids or your grandkids are going to have. Because in their classes, in their manuals, in their study guides, in their gospel doctrine classes, that is how the translation is going to be described. The reason why it wasn't described before, I can't speculate. But I do know that the church has done more lately to spend money and time to help people understand their history than in all of the rest of the history of the church combined. And, and so now that we have a better understanding of how the translation took place, we have two options. We can say that the church is wrong, that all those manuals are wrong, that the church is, is that the prophet's been deceived, that he shouldn't have made a YouTube video explaining that it happened that way. Or we can say, wow, I, I didn't know that it happened that way. I'm so glad that the church is trying to help me understand how it happened. In the end, I don't think any of us know exactly how things happened in the past. But there's a very big difference between saying, I don't know how it happened, and saying, I know exactly how it happened, and the prophet is deceived if he doesn't think it happened the way I think it happened. And that's where we have to be careful. Once you make a particular part of the gospel adamantly something that you have to believe, and it's not what the church is actually teaching, then we open ourselves up for apostasy. The reason why I spent some time on this uh, on this episode is I, I don't want anyone to be deceived. I, I don't know that I'm 100% right on the things I think about the translation of the Book of Mormon, 
But I do know that the things that I say and speak about it are exactly what the church is saying and speaking about it. Now, someone might say, well, I don't know and I don't understand. That's not the same thing as saying you're an apostate if you happen to be saying the same thing that the church's manuals are saying. In the end, the Book of Mormon is the Word of God regardless. Be wary of anyone who wants you to be angry about some aspect of church history that the church is not trying to make the issue of. If someone is trying to tell you if you don't believe about where the Book of Mormon took place the way they do that you're an apostate, is the prophet saying that? Or isn't the prophet saying the opposite of that? If someone's trying to tell you if you don't believe about the translation of the Book of Mormon the way I do, that you're an apostate, is the prophet saying that? Or is it just someone with a a loud voice? In the end, all of us need to surrender our will to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as members of the church, we believe that President Nelson is the Lord Jesus Christ's representative on earth. That doesn't mean that he knows everything, but it certainly means that anytime we find ourselves saying, let's talk about the ways President Nelson's been deceived, that we're probably headed down the wrong road. Being a member of the church means being humble, to accept what is revealed through the prophets in all patience and faith, as the revelation declares. So hopefully, as you are confronted with things like this, you'll, you'll realize, you'll recognize that sometimes people who are making these adamant arguments, they, are, they, they may not be making them with all, the, all of the adequate information, and they may be making them in order to cause a rift in your own testimony. So thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it, and we will talk to you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.